Are we chatting? No. No? Okay. <laughs> uh, great show today. Really wonderful. A uh, treat. Yeah. And, and a returning it, guest. It builds. This is really one you should listen to until the end, I think, because, you know, there's some, we got to lay the foundation. It's like last week's show. First of all, recording on a Tuesday. Yes. This week, um, because you're going away. Yep. I'm speaking of environmental stuff. So we're going to talk about the Endangered Species Act today, and you're, you're, I would say, an environmentally themed thing this weekend, right? Huh? Aren't you discussing discussing uh, Walden? Oh, that's true. Yeah. So, um, well, uh, it's really about Thoreau's ego. It's not much <laughs> to do with the environment, honestly. Hmm. At least that's my read of it. Well, not so- a fan so far <laughs> of Walden, but I'm going to go talk about it for a few days with people. That's for sure. I can't, I can't wait to hear your transformation. On this. <laughs> and again, I think you should watch upstream color. Totally related. <laughs> not even going to look at you purse lips. Yeah. I just don't respond to that. Oh my gosh. It's weird. It's weird. Uh, so yeah, we're going to talk about the endangered species act and some really fascinating on the ground reporting by uh, Jessica Alley today. It's going to be it Fantastic was a really good discussion. Paper yeah. And a great conversation. We just I that was really fun. Yeah. People are going to love it. And and you should you should stick with it because at the beginning we we lay the foundation. I was going to say this is like the pyramid of comedy from last week. Except this is the pyramid of knowledge. No, we're we going to lay use... the foundation of the Endangered Species Act and we build up to like how it actually operates on the ground. I think it's fascinating. Will the title of this episode be Orgy of Animal Death? No. Oh. No, there will not. <laughs> Darn, we will not have orgy in a title for this show. I, I don't no. think. I, I I don't know. We'll see what we'll see what strikes me when I get around to editing it. Got some time because we're not going to release this until Friday. So maybe I'll change my mind. Mouse skeleton vomit. Oh boy, that's another that's another episode title we could use. Mm. We we could. That is another title that could be used. What we have some feedback, don't we? We have some votes. Okay. We have so, some very tightly focused, elegant feedback. So, so lay down the foundation. Because we raised the question. Lay down the foundation for this feedback. Foundation is the question we raised last time, which was one of the many questions we asked people to email about. And frankly, the most notable thing about all this is how little compliance we've received. <laughs> uh, we've received virtually no emails, virtually no tweets. Well, it's only it's only We Tuesday. asked many questions. Yeah, yeah, we've it, gotten very little by way of, of people... <laughs> Uh, doing what we asked them to do, which is fine. <laughs> but the, my point is, there's no we should, have ex- we should have received a lot more. So it's shame on all the rest of you. It's only Tuesday, though. However, yeah, uh, we did in response to our question about whether people preferred episodes where it's you and me talking about something, mm-hmm. or episodes where it's you and me talking with a guest about something. Uh, we got one vote in each category, right? So, so far it's a tie. It's a, it's a, it's a, or as they say, a draw. It's a draw. It's a listener draw. Mm-hmm. And so, so one, one vote came in over email and did that person give reasons? I, for, I forget. You showed me the email when it came through. But... Yeah. The, that, uh, the reason to have guests is because when it's just you and me, it's very meandering. <laughs> I believe that was the word used. It's funny. I, meandering, I, which I, is, I, which is completely <laughs> correct. Yeah, I was going to say, has this person ever listened to the show before? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of our thing. We could have called this meandering oral argument. I don't that's know. Another, but, that's another. Uh, no, but the person has listened to the show. It was a good, it was good that's feedback. A good t- it was, it's a good title for today. Embrace the meander. Yeah, but today's not meandering. I it's think not t- at all. T- today but was, had, had, it was, was directionful rather than But for than today and every, for every episode. Yeah. You're going you're gonna to enjoy this more if you embrace the meander. Well, so it's interesting because uh, we got uh, Josh Lee over Twitter. 
longtime listener, loyal listener, um, a great feedback giver uh, for the show. Who voted the other way? Voted the other way. He 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 likes shows that are just uh, that are that are just you and me. Um, but, um, he does like us to bring a little more focus. So in this way, he actually agreed with the other person, right? Cause he's like, talk about a case, a particular case or. Yeah. And he's like, he, he's not saying he doesn't want guests. He says, I prefer more Joe and Christian episodes with guests occasionally. So maybe what, what'd you say last time? We're like two thirds guests and one third you and me. That's about right. That's so he, about the calculation. He might want the it numbers. the other way. He might want one third and two thirds, but he says, I like Joe and Christian discussing one. Uh, three three things like X new article, so we just spend a show talking about an article, or uh, uh, Y news event, so a particular news event, uh, or three a pending case or opinion. Mm-hmm. And I think what he has in mind is like you know those episodes we did with our favorite cases where we focused on which were so much on one fun. case. Those were great, and and then uh, we did an episode discussing uh, Judge Sutton's um, circuit opinion sure. in the gay marriage, cases. which is both an event and an opinion. So it's sort of both those categories, right? Right. That was a significant news event as well. Yeah. And, and we will try to do that. He actually had another suggestion, too. He wanted us to talk about a, a particular verdict column. You can see all this, by the way, uh, if you go to oral, at Oral Argument on Twitter. And you can look at our at replies and you can see our, our feed and you can see uh, and, and join this conversation. I think it's great. Um, but he wanted to, He said, for example, you could do this thing, you know, respond to this particular article, which is a little bit about um, uh, judicial finance, uh, uh, campaign finance, you know, the recent Supreme Court case about Mm -hmm. judicial elections and and campaign finance restrictions imposed by the Florida Supreme Court there. Uh, Apropos of which, we do have planned a a show about that. Um, We do? Yeah, we do. We were going to talk about judicial elections and, or at least we have one where you might, that might be part of the conversation. Okay. Um, Not sure when that's going to come off yet, though. We have to there were some scheduling things. And in fact, I guess this is a good time for a program note. Uh, we might not have a show um, the next. week after this one or maybe even the next. There may be up to two weeks off. Of hiatus. Huh. Yes, because I, I will be. Not I hate us, but hiatus. <laughs> I'll be on the road. There's, there's a chance we could drop a funny little episode in there, but but I'll, I'll be on the road. We'll see. We'll see how it yeah. goes. But um, Now, when I go on the road, I make sure we can still do it. And it's interesting that you failed to live up to that standard. But yeah. moving on. Um, when you go on the road, all you have to do is be in touch by your phone, though. Correct. Um, you don't, yeah. I don't, so what you're trying to tell me is you don't want to cart all of this equipment with you, which yeah. I just think is interesting. And if, even if we it's did an interesting it, value choice. <laughs> even if we did it phone to phone, you know, just kind of phone to phone, I would still have to, like, you know, output it and show note it all you know all those other things i understand it's hard, hard to do yeah you're these are but, things but you you're could, saying you don't think are worth doing and that's fine oh no i think these are very much worth doing so worth doing that maybe you should do them oh, for those couple no. weeks <laughs> oh <laughs> <laughs> hilarious <laughs> um let's see so so we've got votes either way um both of them are, are are basically saying they like the shows that where we focus on something um yes that's difficult for us it is <laughs> Although I don't think Josh I'm like is, that little fly in the in the sand that is endangered. I just like to flit around. But we got some good feedback, both from a uh, listener and, and, and frequent guest, Anthony Kreiss, about the last couple of shows. Well, what did he say? Uh, he was saying he was traveling around and was able to kind of catch up. And a lot of people who have had exams or have been, yeah. you know, this is your chance to kind of catch up, especially over the next couple of weeks. So I might even tweet some suggestions of right. things to catch up. So he caught the episodes with uh, Ann Barto and Derek Muller. And, and, um, nice. said, he said it was time well spent, highly recommended. So thank you so much, Anthony, for the shout out on Twitter. Uh, and, uh, and, and listener bunny. Oh, also tweeted, um, 
uh, about last week's show talking about here's how she characterized it. We discuss keeping kids off drugs with knitting and games on this week's oral argument. <laughs> there was other stuff, too. Uh, I thought it was a good show. Um, uh, so, so thanks for that. And, and in general, you know, tweet us, uh, uh, link us on Facebook, tell your friends about the show, rate the show on iTunes. You don't have to uh, leave a review. You just need to rate. And that helps people find the show. So do what you can. Yeah, Joe, uh, you, you, I have I'll a, call on you. You were raising your hand. Thank you. I have a bit of feedback that comes neither by way of tweet nor by way of email, but rather by way of... Carrier pers- pigeon. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, personal conversation with a, a fan of the show, longtime listener, um, listener Dan. Okay. Uh, and he was telling me, uh, with respect to our conversation of last week, which was great fun. I really enjoyed our conversation last week. Especially when we were talking about uh, Nicholas Georgiakopoulos' paper. Yes. Um, and we were talking about a uh, second bit of that was about the Monty Hall problem. Right. And Dan expressed gratitude to me for resisting your uh, <laughs> imprecations <laughs> as uh, steadfastly as I did. Uh, because, like me, Dan yeah. felt that one can completely acknowledge the utter correctness of the mathematical assessment. And yet, find it difficult to let go of the psychological feeling that when the things are removed, you've shifted to a 50-50 guess, right. which is what I was trying to express. Right. Um, and that, that sort of conflict between how you might feel psychologically and what you know the statistics are telling you right. and getting those two things to get to line up yeah. more yeah. Um, is, can be challenging. And that's what makes the Monty Hall problem so fun. Yes, it makes um, it fun. But, so but, he really, but it Dan also really goes to your point. It goes to your point last week about and what you wanted to talk. And I think we'll talk about it in the future too. Is the importance of visualization? Yeah, the importance of making something physical rather than abstract, right? Yes. And, and so that's what I was trying to do and failing with you last week. I think right? no, you no, By I think you increasing were su- the number of shells. I think and you, all that. you're you're interpreting it quite wrongly. I think you you were you were succeeding greatly as was the visualization. Um, what 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 was also succeeding was the strong psychological grip that a concept can have so it's not about you weren't succeeding you were i mean imagine how much worse it would have been if you hadn't even tried um because it's that the psychological thing is that strong Mm -hmm. that it's very hard to dislodge right so i think you did a great job well but but let the listeners be the judge human minds are what they are including mine yeah uh anything else nope nothing else huh We should go on with the show. Yep. Jessica Alley, back again. <laughs> You're a repeat guest, Jessica. Yeah, although I was, I was, I was a very mi- minimal guest last time. Now, Jessica, um, this is Joe. I'm very bad at pronouncing people's last names, so how do you pronounce your surname? Owley. Think like the bird, like an owl. Oh, okay, cool. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> that was a missed opportunity. We could have asked Joe how he would pronounce it. Oh, God only oh, knows. Sorry. Do you know what you would have thought? I I, I can't reconstruct it. <laughs> no. I can't I can't re, I can't recapture my innocence That's now that true. she's told me. Yeah. You could also think like, ow, Lee. Which <laughs> <laughs> is what kids used to do when I was little. Nice. It, it is like an adverb that describes owl like actions or yeah, yeah. um or or owie actions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it is I think that some people use it to mean grumpy. Really? Yeah, I've heard that before, yeah. Oh, huh, I didn't know. Well, should we jump right in? What do you, sure. Joe? What do you have? You're, you're looking quizzical. I don't the owliest, uh, the owliest behavior I can think of is barfing up a a fur wrapped mouse skeleton. <laughs> That's very owly. 
I was thinking more Tootsie Roll pop. <laughs> yes, they can do the Tootsie Pops. Which is significantly less gross than what you just said. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, it, you know, your mileage may vary. <laughs> and it does. Let's face it. Our mileage is very, Joe. Uh, perhaps I can redefine your idea of outly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, with every moment that passes, it gets better. Let's say that. <laughs> yeah, especially. Yeah. Unless you start with Tootsie Rolls and then you've got, <laughs> you know, you've got the and he was actually wearing a scholar's little cap, right? He the, was, he yeah. was. Right. That's, yes. Oh, yeah. He looked like he was going to commencement because he's a wise owl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That does convey wisdom. <laughs> well, you know, so so a lot of uh, last names, which Joe insists on calling surnames, um, were were uh, <laughs> okay, he's just looking around I would, you like to... that's some kind of freaky behavior <laughs> calling it a surname <laughs> yeah i insist on calling it a thing it is commonly referred to as you mm. jackass <laughs> i <laughs> i wish you would translate more of your head motions and head shaking and sighing <laughs> into radio friendly uh but you just did kind of uh yeah so um you know, a lot of last names were imposed, right? Or, or there was a time when suddenly there were last names, and so it was your job, right? So Miller and Tanner and Turner and yeah, all, all and Miller Spangler, yeah, Sp- Spangler. Didn't know that yeah, one. Chandler, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm wondering what profession went with Owley. Well, uh, we could try and make one up, but the the truth of the matter is that it is the um, I, as as you surmised my. Uh, my ancestors did not have last names, they, and they came to the United States from Norway, and they were asked to provide a last name, and they just gave the name of the uh, river near where they lived. Oh, wow. Which in Norwegian is spelled A-U-L-I, Auli. Ah. Yeah, so that's apropos of today's show. That's delightful. Named, <laughs> af- named after a natural resource, named after a, a landmark, probably now heavily polluted, I'm guessing. <laughs> I, you know, Norway does a lot better than we do. I, I, I think actually the Avalie River is pretty good. Okay. Next to the Jarlsberg Farm, where Jarlsberg cheese comes from. Not delicious. Have you made a sojourn over there? I have, yeah. Cool. Uh, what, um, what are the chances that you could go again and bring us along? Um, <laughs> or at least send us a block of cheese. No, 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 no. I want to go to Norway. <laughs> so that, that would be easy, seeing as you can borrow Jarlsberg anywhere. Yeah, we can go up to the grocery store, like Fair five enough. minutes from my house. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I am actually always trying to figure out good reasons why my research needs to take me to Norway. I have uh, yet, not yet been successful in that. Well, you, you did find a project that took you to California. Um, yeah. and But it sounds like it was a relatively frustrating trip, or trips, plural, uh, to, to um, California. Yeah, yeah, it was. So it was, um, there were... There's only one trip, one week long trip as I, you know, drove around the state in my little rental car and many, many phone calls, emails uh, and letters and FOIA requests over the course of several years, actually, um, on a project that I thought would be frustrating for different reasons than it was frustrating. All right. So we're going to get into that and we're going to start with the Endangered Species Act. Uh, But um, but let me me just say this. Uh, I'm guessing that calling bureaucratic offices in California is far less fun than driving around California. <laughs> uh, yeah, except for the day I crashed my rental car into a Porsche. Oh, that was... oh, whoa, that didn't make it into the article. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, that's more dramatic than it was. I just backed up into one in a parking lot at the San, Santa Barbara County Recorder's Office. Wow. Now, now from there, did you, you just, just between us, um, <laughs> did you, 
Did you just flee the scene? I did not flee the scene. Okay, okay, all right. Were you dragged from your car and flogged by the wealthy person? <laughs> I, I, I never met her in person. Was she the county recorder? I hope not. I hope not. I, I, I would be shocked to think that the county recorder was uh, driving a Porsche, well, even in Santa Barbara. I, you know, I, you never know. You never, you know. never know. Yeah. Well, they're not putting the money into record keeping, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> as, as we learn. All right. So let's so, so this you've got this. I think really fascinating paper. And this is, let me just say the, the, what we're going to talk about today, whether you know anything about law or not, you could totally read this paper and understand the problem. Oh yeah. You could understand uh, Jessica's interest in it. You could understand um, the suggestions you make for reform. Uh, and, and I was just excited to get you on just to talk about the endangered species act and the idea of the endangered species act, what it's supposed to be doing. And, and you have a very practical paper um, about, you know, which kind of shows, you know, what this law is actually doing in practice or, or, or what it's what it's not accomplishing in, in practice. And was this uh, so I, I don't know. First of all, like, how would you describe it if you had to give a, a, a one paragraph description of the Endangered Species Act? And then we can get into like the major parts, section four, seven, nine and ten, I think, mm-hmm. are kind of the major, you know, we can talk about what you, each of those four does. But if you just had to give like a thumbnail paragraph uh, presentation to somebody about what the Endangered Species Act is, um, what, what would you say? Oh, I would say that it's a statute where we, uh, we study the wildlife and determine which of those are at risk of going extinct, and then we put in protections for that wildlife, while at the same time uh, including provisions that allow us to legally kill and destroy the habitat of that wildlife. Yeah, so like famously, the the Endangered Species Act has very few places the designation of critical habitat being one, but but very few places that consider cost at all. Like it, right. on its on its face, it it elevates preservation of endangered species above all other societal goals. Um, and yet, in practice, this is one area where the law in practice differs dramatically from the law that that's written. Uh, those costs. Um, that that kind of cost consciousness comes into the actual administration of the act in ways which are somewhat unexpected, uh, and and part of your paper I think is about that. But um, but if we go, kind of go through it, so we got section four, which establishes the list, right? So the, the mechanism of the act is there's a list. Uh, there uh, you get you're either on the list or you're not. You can be on as endangered. You can be on as threatened. Let's just talk about endangered just to make it simpler, if you don't mm-hmm. mind. And so if you're if you're if you're a species that's on the list, and they can be plant and animals, and that makes a difference because plants are treated differently in one section. But let's just stick with animals for now. So if you're an animal and you're on the list, then there then uh, uh, section seven says that basically the federal government can't do things that jeopardize the continued existence of the species in the wild. And Section 9 says that the uh, that no private party can take endangered species and do some other things, including importing, exporting. And take has been understood to be basically, you know, killing or uh, harassing or otherwise interfering with the survival of the species in the wild, right? And then Section 10 says, well, maybe you can take. Maybe you can take under a very uh, specific set of circumstances and you have to have a plan, some kind of mitigation plan, which we'll talk about in a second. So is where that, does the where does the degradation of habitat come in? It's, is that in just is that simply ancillary to the notion that you can't take? And so and 
Critical right. Habitat so there's another as I, section? As I understand it, and Jessica, you jump in at any time and kind of clarify. I've taught yeah. this a couple of times in some other classes. I think Critical Habitat only comes in in Section 7. Yeah, so that's why I would have actually, I would have made kind of two small changes to your descriptions of 7 and 9. So Section 7, you're right, says that no activity undertaken by the federal government can jeopardize the continued existence of the species as a whole or adversely modify critical habitat. And critical habitat being that habitat that's designated as such, right? It's actually a line drawn on a map. You can pull up kind of the um, the regulations and there's a designated area. So habitat comes in that way if it's critical habitat. And then section nine, you, you said, uh, prohibits uh, private individuals from taking, but it actually prohibits anybody. In any individual, right. 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 And, it, and it comes up a lot for government agencies, right? So government right. agencies, nobody is allowed to kill endangered species the definition of take is more than kill, though. It also includes things like harm and harass. And harm, when we say harm endangered species, so that's where we can think about what um, what it means to destroy their habitat. Does it destroy their habitat if we, you know, chop up their home? Does right. that harm the endangered species? Probably. But that that's actually a, a very still tricky, tricky thing to figure out is when it um, qualifies as harm. Pretty well-known Supreme Court case on on mm-hmm. this uh, the Sweet Home case, right? That yep. uh, where I think was it O'Connor who wrote it or concurred? I forget. It, it's been O'Connor a while now. concurs, but there's kind of this O'Connor concurrence versus Scalia dissent, kind of debating what it really means to hurt an endangered species. And so O'Connor is saying, "Oh, you know, if you kind of disrupt where they breed um, and where they live, that's going to be harm to them. Um, and uh, but only if you can show that the that such disruption actually really does harm an individual of the species. And Scalia kind of says it's really should just be about killing and affecting an individual species and not where they live. Harming for Scalia, it's really about harming individual animals. Yeah. And, uh, and, and for O'Connor, she would like infer harm, infer violations or infer a take from things which are very likely to harm individual animals uh, and including their breeding activities. So if you, if you go out and you chop down a tree that has spotted owls in them, or that are very likely to have spotted owls in them, that would be enough for O'Connor. Whereas Leo is like, yeah, you can chop down the tree so long as you don't shoot the owls. Yeah. Um, I think that's, you you know, as long as you can show kind of proximate cause. Right. Now I'm guessing he would also object if while owls were engaged in the sexy time, if you like tapped them on the shoulder. (laughs) <laughs> right because that's that kind of interrupts the mood Joe, that's just common decency you don't, <laughs> we don't need laws for that. we don't need a statue for that <laughs> no. fair enough mm. so yeah i mean so for the listeners if you just want to keep in your head the general structure of the act it's like super easy in a way like there's provision about the list uh who has to maintain the list interestingly actually you know, it, the um there are two main agencies charged with this uh there's um uh fish and wildlife, fish and wildlife which is a um a division of interior and uh, and then there is Secretary of Commerce is the other secretary, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and Secretary of Commerce is under Commerce. You find uh, is it U.S. Marine Fishery Services? It's uh, they've changed their name. So it used to be called NIMS, which is the National Marine Fishery National, Service, and yeah. now it's called NOAA Fisheries N O A A whatever that is National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Yep. Yep. So. So, so if you're killing endangered uh, fish, uh, it's going to be the Secretary of Commerce ultimately and that or- organization chart the deal. But anyway, it doesn't really matter. There's always a, an, an agency which is kind of charged with 
making sure uh, that the provisions of the act are adhered to, either enforcing Section 9 or, or ensuring consultation with other agencies under Section 7. So if there's an agency of the federal government which is charged with giving, say, permits for filling in wetlands, like the Corps of Engineers is in Section 404 of the Clean Water Act. So I want to go out and I want to build a new subdivision. And part of the building in the subdivision is like bringing in a bunch of fill dirt and filling in places that are normally wet and feed into streams. Right. Uh, I have to get a permit for that normally, right, under the Clean Water Act. Well, the granting of that permit, even though, you know, even if, right, uh, Section uh, 9 doesn't apply to me for some reason, um, uh, Section uh, uh, Section 7 might, even though that only applies to the federal government, because it applies to the federal government government's grant of a permit to me. Like, that is a federal action. Mm-hmm. And that federal action requires, uh, you know, the, the uh, compliance with those um, restrictions um, that they not endanger, uh, you know, jeopardize the continued and they not um, um, interfere with critical habitat. So you set this up as a tension between what looks like an absolute protection and what in practice isn't. Uh, and I haven't I haven't heard you cash that in yet. So well, well, it, it sounds like it's there's a prohibition on harming the animal. Right. And its habitat b- broadly understood. Um, depending on the actor involved. Um, and that sounds like, okay, whatever you were planning on doing, you just have to stop. Yeah. Right. But turns out that isn't true. Let me, let, there are a couple of things and I'm, and I'll let Jessica, you deal with the second kind of, cause the political economy angle of it. The, the one, there are two places. Well, actually, so I guess there are three, there are two places where cost really comes into the act directly. One is the, uh, in the designation of critical habitat. Which I think Jessica, you would know better than I would. Probably, it, it's if it's prudent and and reasonable, then these, so there's an exception. They don't always have to designate critical habitat when they list a species if, <laughs> if it's imprudent, right? Well, they're supposed to always list the the critical habitat. What the kind of prudent lets them get out of is is just lets them delay listing the critical habitat. They are still supposed to statutorily required to do so. They. Um, notoriously have not, right? The listing of critical habitat is supposed to happen when there's the listing of species, but it's, there's a big backlog. Yeah, it says the, to the maximum extent prudent and reasonable designated at the same time, and then and they may revisit it uh, thereafter. And you're right. I mean, but it, it is remark. I mean, it's it's remarkable. I mean, remarkable in the sense that you can remark on it uh, that that those are words which have any kind of balance in them whatsoever, right? Whereas this act is otherwise fairly absolute. Um, yeah. And, and I, that's not a critique. I mean, maybe this should be absolute. We can talk about this in, in a little bit. The other place that it, that it definitely comes in is uh, Section Seven. Um, and the Endangered Species Committee, otherwise known as the God Squad. Mm-hmm. So, so this was actually. Uh, <laughs> do you know the Teleco Dam story, Joe? No, uh, Jessica. Do you want to tell not the Teleco? Not by that name. Yeah, I've though. talked enough. I'm wondering if Jessica wants to. Do you want to tell the Teleco Dam story, Jessica, or do you? Or you sure, want me to do sure. It? Yeah, go so, ahead. Uh, Teleco Dam, Tennessee Valley Authority versus Hill. So, Tennessee- oh, the snail darter case. There you exactly. go. Snail Why didn't you just say that? <laughs> That's what everyone right. knows it by. All right, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> no, so this is this is a snail darter. Uh, uh, for those of you not familiar with them, are teeny tiny fish about the size of like a paperclip that were, um, and there's many different types. And there was a type of snail darter that was found um, in the Little Tennessee River right um, as this big, big TVA project, the Teleco Dam, was nearing completion. And they found it, and then it was listed. And the listing, right, as Christian pointed out, only, only science can determine the listing. Right, you can't consider any of the um, 
economic impacts when you're just looking at the decision of is this fish endangered or not. So it gets listed as endangered and then they have to try and figure out what that means. And they figure out, the court says, hey, this statute is actually really clear. And it says we cannot, you know, uh, jeopardize the continued existence of a listed species and building this dam will eradicate the species. It will go extinct. So, um, uh, uh, obviously people were not super happy with that answer from the court and, um, this, uh, they pushed, um, uh, through, um, as, uh, this amendment to the statute that created the God squad, created the endangered species committee, which is a committee of people that, um, and I can't remember how many people are on it, but they, uh, they can get together and decide to kind of overturn, a a, a decision. Right. So of the Endangered Species Act. So the idea was that this God squad would just uh, change its mind about the snail darter and decide that we could kind of sacrifice this one type of snail darter for the good of building the dam. The funny thing, of course, is that, that the God squad looked at the, the project and said this dam isn't really even financially viable and there's, we shouldn't finish building it, you know, let alone kind of protection. So it de- definitely didn't merit destruction of this species because of that. No, they did the, it anyways through an appropriations writer. Yeah, it was, so there's a whole story. Yeah, so the Endangered Species Committee, the God Squad, after having this whole thing changed, looks at it and says, this dam is a boondoggle. It's not even justified on its own terms, much yeah. less with the species. And so, so they, they don't do what, they, what that God Squad provision was put in there to do. And then after that, as you say, Congress puts in through a rider and appropriations anyway, the building of this dam. So the dam is then built. But then there's another story. There's another chapter to the story. So they build the dam, you know, you think maybe killing the species, but then later they find snail darters somewhere else. Well, so they have, they've tram- they, they actually did, um, they've been doing a lot of work still underway of kind of um, transporting the, um, they took the snail darters out and put them in another river. Um, hmm. What is the, go- what criteria is this uh, environmental, what is it again? Endangered Species Act Committee? What, uh, what, what criteria are they supposed to use when they're deciding whether or not to, uh, do they, are, do you guys saying that they decide whether or not an animal belongs on the list or there's, or they decide whether a particular remedy is appropriate? No, it, it's, um, it's it's it, with particular with respect to particular federal actions. So section seven applies to federal actions, okay. and a federal action that would otherwise be prohibited under the act can be approved by the God Squad if the God Squad finds there are what is it no reasonable and prudent alternatives, and they can look at the regional or national significance of it. They can look at whether there was the commitment of irretrievable resources. They look at a number of factors and they come out with and they're, a and they're laid out in the statute. Yeah. So it's, and, and there's, yes, there, okay. some of them are, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't have it in front of me, Jessica. So I don't know if it's one of those that has a whole list of factors and then it says, or other things in the public interest, blah, 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 that basically gives them a free hand. Um, but it's, they have a lot of power, I think. And yeah. They, you know, and it's, it's, um, I did just pull it up. So it's seven people and it's like the secretary of agriculture, the secretary of the army, right? So the secretary of interior, it's a pretty uh, powerful group and it doesn't give them any list of factors to, to consider in the statute, but it kind of says it does kind of just give them kind of a, a charge to kind of think about um, uh, whether or not there are certain things that should be exempted from it, but not, not, it doesn't actually spell out exactly what they should consider. Is that, is that in the regs then? It must be in the regs, but also, you know, and I don't know the numbers on this, but it's extremely small, the number of things this God Squad has ever overturned. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
And by overturned, what you mean is um, concluded that a project that would otherwise be blocked by the act should go ahead. Right. So they have the power to grant an exemption from the section um, um, from from requirements of the statute. Okay. Um, so the requirements of section seven. So they can requ- they can create an exemption for a um, section seven, which is the putting an entire species at risk of extinction kind of actions. The federal they're, actions. They're not uh, they're not empowered to exempt someone from the force of section nine, are they? I don't think so. Not not according to the words of the statute. Okay. Um, yeah. And I'm interested in getting to to the this what I take to be one important way into your paper, which is this distinction between designating an animal for the list, which we can think of as including some understanding of the habitat that they need to uh, continue to live and and then improve, perhaps, uh, in terms of their their robustness as a species. Um, But then there's the question of, of remedy when someone wants to do something that might cause some harm to their habitat. Because ultimately, your paper is about these habitat conservation plans, right? Yeah, so this is... You so, know, this, so, so this issue of remedy that, is important, like figuring out, like someone yeah. might hurt them, what can we do to remedy that situation? And, and, it, and it too seems to involve a weighing of, of relative costs and benefits. So like many environmental laws, in fact, like most of our environmental laws, we start off by saying thou shalt not, and then we say except if you get a permit. So a lot of our laws work this way. The Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, things like that. They say, you, you know, you shouldn't, you can't pollute. They're like, unless you follow these rules where we tell you how to pollute. So the Endangered Species Act says thou shalt not kill or harm endangered species. Um, but in the 80s, they realized, um, so after Teleco Dam, so the, the, after the snail darter case, um, they realized that uh, this was really burdensome on developers, really burdensome on big agency projects, the big, like, you know, just like the Teleco Dam, for example. So they wanted to try and give them an out from Section 9. So the God Squad is your out from Section 7. Your um, Section 10 is the out from Section 9. It's saying you can actually take endangered species if, uh, if you get a permit to do so. And so when we give people a permit where they says, we're, we're going to allow you to harm, we're going to allow you to, you know, take them, harm their habitat, kill individuals, whatever. Um, we're going to allow you to do that, but you have to do so under kind of this program we've developed. And the program under Section 10 requires people to get a Section 10 permit. And in getting the permit, you have to put together what's called a habitat conservation plan. And in there, you show how uh, you're going to actually try and um, ameliorate for the harm that you've done. So if I'm a private developer, I've got my I've got my own property and there's no and and, and developing it would be consistent with all local and federal regulations yep. and, all, and all all the rest. Right. So other federal and right. Exactly. And and part of the problem here is I may be in a region where pretty much the entire region is critical for some species. Maybe it's a salamander. Maybe it's as in the case of the Delhi sands flower loving fly, a small fly, which lives yeah. in, in the sand, right? So uh, it may be the whole region. And, and so if I develop it, um, 
especially if you take a broad view of take, I might be taking that species. And and so, again, I'm not the federal government. And so my decision to build something on my own land is not necessarily subject to Section 7 on its own, right? But I am a person. And as a person, I'm not allowed to take an endangered species. Um, and if this, if my building would be considered a take, then I can't do it. Unless Section Unless 10 get, says you can. Section 10 says I can get what's called, an, you know, what Jessica referred to, an incidental take permit. So long as if my goal is if taking this, the, uh, the critters would be incidental to, but not the purpose of my activity, mm-hmm. and I have a habitat conservation plan, then I can do it. And, yep. uh, and so that's what this is. This is why it's But, but no. in granting the incidental take permit, that's a federal action. And so maybe Section 7 comes back into it again. So it, does, it gets a little yeah. bit complicated the way it bends back in on itself. But yeah, rather than pursue that complication, yeah. uh, if it, Jessica, if you can tell me what like, so what is in conventional uh, habitat conservation plans as people do them today? Like oh. what, if you if someone's getting advice about what that thing needs to include, what what is someone going to tell them? Well, you know, they're all over the place. I, I don't think you, it's really hard to say that there's one kind of model. Different regions might develop a model, but we're talking about all different types of species and different types of projects, mm. which is one of the reasons why they have um, uh, they have a lot of flexibility to them. We don't have kind of really strict rules about what goes into a habitat conservation plan. We have kind of some factors and some things that have to be in it according to the statute and the regulations, but, but nothing is kind of uh, super... Um, prescribed about what you have to do. But I usually what they involve are certain um, activities or measures you have to undertake while you're engaged in building your project. So let's say you're going to build a bunch of um, suburban homes, a suburban residential development. It'll tell you what you have to do during the building to make sure you don't, I don't know, kill the turtles in the area. And then it'll also kind of acknowledge um, that you, uh, it'll Acknowledge how many you are allowed to kill or how much habitat you are allowed to destroy. And then in doing something, um, then it'll have kind of this almost like after the project continuing mitigation um, that is usually protecting some type of habitat. So if you have converted a bunch of uh, desert tortoise habitat into now suburban homes, maybe you have to create or protect desert tortoise habitat elsewhere. So many of them involve some type of conservation easement or conservation bank of, of protected habitat. So Most it, of them. it's a plan which applies to, um, to kind of guide your, your own construction of your project in a way that minimizes, because uh, overall it's, you're not supposed to jeopardize the, you know, right. continued, what does it say? Appreciably reduce the likelihood of, uh, uh, of the continued existence of the critter in the wild. I mean, something mm-hmm. like that. And, and so, you know, the, the kinds of things in the plan might be, you agree to use these kinds of materials or not to build here, but to build there or to establish this and put in certain money for the continued monitoring, et cetera. And as Jessica says, maybe also preserving land elsewhere. Now, what's very different about these two things, the during your construction and the after where you might protect some habitat that hadn't been protected before, or you might try to create new habitat. That sounds extremely challenging to me. Um, To make nature. Yeah, but what's what's different about these two different things is is the time horizon for both, and and that yeah. implicates the ability to monitor whether the person has complied with what they submitted in their own plan. If we if we putting putting the enforcement resources necessary to do so to the side for a moment, right? Because that raises a whole host of challenging questions, I'm sure. But for any given level of enforcement dollars, at least we would know what to do. Right. You, you, you've told us where you're going to build. 
you've said you, this is how you're going to act while you're building. And while you're building, we could go and look at what you're doing. And we could see whether or not you were living up to, we think of it as a promise that you made. This is, this is how I will behave, right? Yeah. Um, whereas the other one seems much more open-ended and seems like a much longer time horizon, which seems to me to have qualitatively a different challenge to it. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. So the idea for most of the protection, right, um, and as I said, most of it's used with this tool called a conservation easement, the protection of habitat is supposed to be perpetual, in perpetuity. So, yeah, a very different time horizon from the, you know, the two years maybe that it takes to build that housing development versus the forever that you would have to be kind of monitoring and keeping track of the, um, the conservation land. And as a quid pro quo, is that really... What is a con- how does a conservation easement improve, or, or let me, uh, how does the conservation easement balance the ledger, right? Like, I'm, I'm degrading the habitat by doing my project. The reason that Section 10 says that's okay is if I have some other, uh, the way I'm thinking of it, maybe this is wrong, you tell me. But the reason, in, in essence, it's, it's a quid pro quo, right? Yes, I'm making it worse in one way, but I'm going to try to bring the thing back into balance this other way and before, by creating before a Before you answer, I, I don't think we said what a conservation easement is, but it's kind of poorly named in my view. They're really yes. better called covenants, uh, but they're, they're basically prom- – like servitudes. Yeah, they're promises not to uh, use your land in ways that are inconsistent with the regulations that are written down in, in the covenant. And usually well, – so someone else holds the right to stop you from – developing you've you've contracted away your right to develop and you've given someone else ah. the right to enforce so that. it sounds it sounds like that's a that's a way to answer the question how are things better because if that if that enforceable promise not to do certain things didn't exist before and now it exists right i really did trade one thing for another yes well kind of but you know i have a lot of trouble with just that starting concept because let's say we're talking about and i'll just use desert tortoise because i did before let's say we're talking about a bunch of um, desert tortoise habitat. Well, in theory, we shouldn't be destroying any desert tortoise habitat because it's protected by the Endangered Species Act. So to say you can destroy five acres of it as long as you put a conservation easement over 10 acres of it, have we actually gained protection for the desert tortoise? Because we should have not have, that 10 acres should have already been protected just by the Endangered Species Act itself without well, the, needing the, the best argument. The, the best argument for, if it does, yeah, it's and I agree with you that conceptually there's a very obvious sense in which it does not. <laughs> but yeah. if it does, it would only be because the world with the conservation easement protects those ten acres much better than the act alone. Well, right. So that's that's the idea. And also, sometimes you could take. I do feel a little bit better where we take kind of degraded habitat and improve it, and then you can kind of get credit for the improvement you've done. But you're but you're right. The idea is that. We without the conservation easement puts a layer of protection on it that uh, people believe is superior to the protection of just having the Endangered Species Act out there. And is that true? Well, that's what we're going <laughs> to. So this is the interest, I, you know, this and we're all, finally at the brink of her paper. <laughs> this is all you know background. It's about how it's supposed to work, and how it's supposed to work. Right? Is that uh, we have this scheme where the federal government oversees anything that might threaten the destruction of species. And if I want to make a private development that would have the effect of taking, you know, we found out because these endangered species live over large areas that that strict enforcement of just Section 9 and Section 7 would make it so that large areas of, say, near Austin, Texas are not developable at all. 
right. because of the is it the red cockaded woodpecker? I forget which one, but there, mm-hmm. there are various bird species and other things which may make it impossible to develop at all. Right. And that seems impractical. And so what are you going to do? Well, we'll create this God squad that helps with Section 7 maybe. And then what are we going to do about Section 9, which prevents somebody from just building a shed in their backyard if they wanted to? How do we how do we deal with that? So we create these, you know, how it's supposed to work is you create these regional, well, one way it could work is you create large habitat conservation plans that say, well, how are we going to implement this act on the ground is we're going to preserve these areas over here and we're going to allow development over here. And every time this development here has to occur according to these ways, but not using these means, we have to leave space by streams and we can't cut down these kinds of trees, et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to uh, uh, make developers when they develop, you know, put in a certain amount of money uh, in order to fund this plan and fund continuing study. And we've got this big plan, which is basically the plan for the recovery of the species in the wild. That's how it's kind of supposed to work, right? Mm -hmm. And it can work on a very small scale as you've detailed in, in some of your work uh, Jessica and or it could work in a large like a large region with a multi you know development habitat conservation plan what's interesting about I think fascinating about Jessica's paper is that it says okay that's how it's supposed to work how is this actually working why don't I go and I take why don't I go and take a look at actual habitat conservation plans see what they are and see you know what does the land look like what are they actually doing and I I take like, it Jessica, the, the very simple the very simple and elegant and yet so simple as to be like devastatingly intelligent, right? right. Like I'll, I'll do the simple thing of just going to see how it's being done. And, right? and like, are people exactly. complying with promises they made? And here's, here's my, that's sto- how it read to me. Yes. And here's my story uh, of, here's my thought about like what motivated you to do this, Jessica, and how you, like what I was thinking is you, you, that you thought, okay, what I want to see is whether these areas which have been preserved are actually any good, right? So I want to go and see, you know, there's like a fenced off area behind a grocery store that has like some wetland in it. And are there actual species there? Is it being maintained? Is it full of trash? Is it, you know, what's, but you found something very, very different. I mean, is that, is that right? Is that what you were expecting? You said in the paper that you thought that the easy part, that the, uh, that what was difficult for you would actually be the easy part and that you would go and you would look at like habitat quality and stuff, I assume. Is that kind of how you fell into it? Well, not exactly. I mean, I think I, uh, ideally would have had kind of a team of people with me with without having you know i have a, a educational background in, in science and policy but i'm not a biologist right so to really assess the healthiness of the habitat I, I don't have the skills to do that on my own right so i can't really say you know hmm is this the kind of thing kangaroo rats like or not um i could look however at the skills i do have which saying is the habitat actually being protected? Is it, are, is there, if, is, are these restrictions actually in place? And, and then I came in it to it in, um, in a very small way, which is that um, these conservation easements that we've mentioned are something I've long been ex- obsessed with. And I w- was really interested in where we use them in permits because uh, the birth of conservation easements in this country was all really about um, uh, kind of uh, conserving people's uh, farms and things like that. Um, And people visioned these would be uh, donations. So most people thought that these were going to be these things that people kind of donate their their development rights over their family farms or kind of these pretty habitat they have, and they'll get this tax break in return for it. And then over time, people are like, well, we need to buy them. But what I had found kind of earlier as I was working on my dissertation 10 years ago was that... um, a lot of conservation easements actually grow up because people are asking for them in exchange for a permit. So all of the things that people thought that conservation easements were going to do when they wrote the statute, 
those things are happening, but a lot of what's happening are kind of these permit exchanges. And I was curious as if you, if you were, if we were to look at the conservation easements coming out of these permits, I was curious as to see if they looked any different. I wondered if the, the permit agencies kind of uh, retained enforcement rights in them or, or if you could tell that they were associated with a permit or not. So what I started with is actually maybe a less interesting question to other people, but that's what I, I wanted to get it. I wanted to actually find copies of these conservation easements. And I thought it is probably going to be hard to find copies of these conservation easements. I'm probably going to have trouble um, explaining to the agencies what they are and why I want them. What was shocking to me is that I could not, that the agencies didn't even have copies of the, the permits and the habitat conservation plans. So they didn't have the permits that they are supposed to enforce in their hands for the most part. These are the inc- incidental take permits, the Section 10 permits that, that the allow them to take. Permits. Yeah. The Section 10 permits. So you would think, you know, I'm an agent, I'm Fish and Wildlife Service, I'm going to issue a, a Section 10 permit, allow these people to, um, to uh, uh, there's a couple different ones, but one of them was a, um, some, a gravel mining. We're going to allow these people to do gravel mining. And in exchange, I'm going to ask them to do all these things and like four different things I'm going to ask them to do. And, um, and one of them being a habitat conservation, plan, ha- I'm sorry, a conservation easement. I thought, oh, maybe that conservation easement will be hard to find. But the fact is I, I had trouble even finding the permit that listed those four things hmm. or, and the habitat conservation plan that went alongside it, let alone kind of other um, uh, documentation you might expect, like uh, stuff that they had to do under Section 7, maybe things they had to do to comply with the National Environmental Policy Act. The agencies just weren't keeping track of any of this stuff. Yeah, so you you did four case studies, right? Is it four? I wrote up four. I, I I visited a few more than that, but well, I, I wrote up four of them. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear about the other ones. So you you did the the earliest one that you could find, and you did them all in California for reasons you mentioned in the paper. But uh, but the earliest one you could find, which was San Bruno, is that what San it is? San Bruno is the first habitat. It's the first Section Ten. It is the project that actually inspired Congress to amend the statute to create Section Ten because of how innovative they saw this as the path forward in this problem that we talked about earlier and then you and then you just studied kind of somewhat randomly i guess the very latest um habitat conservation plan that you could find and then you found kind of two intervening ones that you thought might shed some light on this and and what's interesting i think is in every in not one of them is that right did you were you able easily to get your hands on the actual permit or the habitat conservation plan that accompanied that permit that, that's right. There was a struggle with every every single one, and and they're not all equal struggles, right? Some of them it happened much faster than others. But um, you know, the San Bruno Mountain Habitat Conservation Plan is the most famous Section Ten permit, the most famous Habitat Conservation Plan, and um, and it was shocking. When was it created? Um, nineteen eighty two and nineteen eighty three. Okay, so that's I mean that's now quite a while ago. It's not quite a while. Yes, right. And um, and I and I will say that I started this project really in two thousand three, um, for for other reasons. I was trying to get a hold of the um, San Bruno Mountain plan, and I and I um, and I called the agency, and they didn't have it. I called the permit holder, which um, in that case is San Mateo County, and they didn't have it. Um, you know, and I. Uh, I stumbled upon just in conversation with some local attorneys. One of them was like, "Oh yeah, I have a copy of that in my office," and um, and he <laughs> gave he gave me a copy of it. And and for the purposes of my the project I was doing back in two thousand and three, two thousand four, that was fine. I didn't 
you know, I had, I had it in my hand. I didn't need anything else. But when I kind of revisited this and I started this project again in 2011, when I revisited it, I kind of remembered how weird that was to me. And I said, let's see, let's see if I can actually try and get it, not just by happenstance, but actually kind of through the agencies that are supposedly, uh, you know, enforcing it. I, you know, some ways I think that the San Bruno one is almost a fluke. I, I do think that especially today, especially now in 2015, they do seem to have a, a good handle on it and a lot of people working on it. But it is, you know, I, I was trying to think, you know, I, here I am, I have, you know, this law degree, um, I have, you know, this um, PhD in environmental science and policy. I, I'm a relatively educated person who focuses all her time and energy on this, and I still couldn't find it. So I was thinking, you know, <laughs> what if, you know, what about just the person who's the neighbor that's kind of wondering what's happening with that project she sees going on next door? Could she even figure out where these things are, or what the rules are, or whether or not they're being enforced? And, and it was a pretty sobering story of, of uh, probably not. Or probably not without a lot of work. Now, the permit is, it's not, in a way, the fact that an agency would have a hard time finding a permit that it issued a while back is not on its own so surprising. Because after all, what the permit says is, yeah, you can go ahead, in this case, you can go ahead and and you can build in a way that that might take some endangered critters. um, uh, And here's their permit saying that you can do that. And here are the things that... uh, and, and here are the things you need to do before you do that, like maybe pay some money into a research fund and also uh, adhere to this habitat conservation plan. It may mention the plan or something. So like all of the things that you have to do in order to get the permit, you do at the time that you get the permit. But what's unusual here, I guess, is that the habitat conservation plan specifies ongoing duties that you might have, right? And and in particular, it may refer to certain easements which you execute before you get the permit, uh, conservation easements. And those conservation easements themselves will specify ongoing duties you might have, like to keep a place fenced off and to keep the area around it maintained or to do X, Y, or Z. And what's interesting here is that the agencies that you, uh, uh, in the various offices you talked to who were charged with had the duty of, uh, administering these things, didn't know where the permit was, didn't know where the actual plan was, and couldn't help you find the easements which maintain the list of these duties that various individuals had, right? So how did they even know what they were? Well, first of all, do I have that story about right? And and, and if I do or if I don't, I mean, if, even if it's a little bit off, uh, how did people know? What, what did they actually think they were enforcing in those offices? Like, what did they... Is it that they just didn't think there was – well, I'll get to that in a second, whether they thought this was important or not uh, compared to other things they were doing on the endangered species front. But like what did they think they were doing? Yeah, great question. I mean you have the story pretty right. And one of the things that we, um, we see is that um, the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, is has many different offices right um, across the country. So within California, I was talking to four different Fish and Wildlife Service offices and they all had uh, different procedures uh, for – how they create these plans, but also different record keeping and monitoring procedures. So, for example, um, one office told me we don't hold on to any of that paperwork after the notice and comment process is done. Well, that's notice and comment is is not the life of a permit, right? So they're actually putting they're actually kind of passing on and putting into deep storage doc or recycling, I guess, uh, documentation even during the time that the permit is in effect. And Endangered Species Act permits can be much longer than other permits. You know, some of them might be 10 years, but some of them are, you know, 50 and 60 years. Mm. 
And then another office told me, well, we don't, we only keep the documentation around for the life of the permit. So let's say the permit I was looking at in that case, I think was 10 years and they, they kept it for 10 years and then they kind of had gotten rid of it. So those are, and then the other offices seem to actually kind of perhaps keep them longer. Sacramento in California being, I think, a repository for, for everything. But the, um, but those, but that's, that one thing is fascinating because it means that, uh, they're not even kind of looking at the mitigation uh, for the life of the permit. Because how can they know? They don't even know what they should be monitoring if they don't have the documentation telling them what the mitigation was, right? They don't even, they are obviously not out there checking on it because they don't even know what it is they're supposed to check on. Um, and then the idea, kind of, I mentioned it to this, a couple of them, I said, you know, what do you do about this fact that the, you know, maybe the permit's expired, but the mitigation doesn't? Mitigation goes on forever. How, how do you keep track of that? And they're like, well, we, we don't. We just kind of assume that if anything goes wrong, um, that other people will notice or something. And, and by other people, either you mean members of the public or the people who hold the, um, the, holders, the, dominant, of the holders of the conservation. E- yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. T- tell us about that part of it. So, that we, so we conservation on, yeah. easement, as, as you say, is kind of like a contract that's um, – where there's a person, an entity um, that uh, holds the conservation easement, mean that they kind of, you could think of them as holding your development rights, uh, but I, I don't know if that's the right way to do it because they can't exercise those rights either, but they're the ones who can enforce. They're the ones who keep an eye on you, supposedly, and make sure that you don't develop your land. So conservation easements are also very narrowly tailored. So let's say the conservation easement says you're not going to develop the back 40 uh, of your land, and then you'd have kind of the holder who would kind of is supposed to at least annually go out there and double check the back 40 acres and make sure you haven't kind of built anything there. So those holders um, by uh, state law um, in California, at least can be um, non-governmental organizations that we call land trusts. They can be state agencies um, or any type of government agency, or they could be tribes. The Fish and Wildlife Service has kind of said, we don't want to hold any of these, which is just too much work. We don't, we'd rather have somebody else who is the holder and the enforcer. And you can see why kind of, kind of, they get to kind of pawn off the enforcement duty and monitoring duty to somebody else. Um, but uh, it does bring up questions. So, uh, so hopefully we can just kind of trust those holders and trust that they're doing a good job, but Fish and Wildlife Service isn't checking up on them. They don't retain, they could, uh, but they don't retain a right to enforce it themselves. It'd be an easy thing to put a line in there. It's that interesting says. because, yeah, I, 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 I always teach, you know, in property, the students that, that easements are, are rights to use the property of another and covenants are the rights to regulate another's use of his or her own property, right? So it's rights to regulate versus rights to use. And the problematic aspect of conservation easements is they're actually conservation covenants. They're actually rights to regulate someone else's use of their property. And as you say, there are these holders, which can be state governments or, or, uh, nonprofits or, or I guess even individuals, but, um, no. Uh, is it not not under California law? You're saying not under any law. I'm um, not. No states allow just individuals. It has to be a government entity or a land trust or a land trust. So not mm-hmm. even like. Uh, so if you're if you're if you're an environmental nonprofit, you'd have to like spin off a land trust in order to hold these things. Yes. Okay. Um. And and so what stops the land trust from selling back? Because with any of these servitudes. You can sell uh, your you you can you can alienate these uh, provisions um, back to the owner to, of the underlying law, estate. Yeah, you can alienate. It. So if the owner buys back the right to regulate, then the owner now has uh, is free of the servitude. And I imagine, of course, well, I don't know what stops 
um, local governments from selling that back, if anything. Uh, and I don't know what um, stops uh, a land trust. Maybe the state law, you know, if there's a conservation easement, they say it has to be forever. Um, I, I'm not sure. But of course, if U.S. Fish isn't monitoring these things, then how do they know that these things, that the property hasn't been unified again? Well, so a few things there. Uh, I do agree with your idea thought that they seem more like covenants. They don't need to be. Conservation easements are such a flexible tool. You could actually write into it um, affirmative rights of the holder. So you could actually have in there that the holder has the right to go on the land and and create and maintain the property. Most of them aren't written that way. Most of them are written in a negative way. Mm -hmm. But that's actually why I like to use the word servitude, because they could have either covenant-like or or easement-like provisions in them. Um, So uh, the you know, there's a, this is a creature of state law, so we have 50 different statutes. There's, you know, about a quarter of them, well, maybe a third of them that are based on a uniform act, but California's is not. So, but let me tell you, under California's, uh, perpetuity is required. So a conservation easement is required to be perpetual in California. Under the main statute, there are two other statutes, and, and not to get in the weeds, but some of the conservation easements I looked at under this project do not look to be enforceable, actually, under the California law. But um, uh, the other things that would stop a land trust are uh, the land trust's own charter. Uh, they could risk losing um, their status as a 501c3 if they do anything that leads to kind of private benefit, private enormment, they call it. Um, in some states, in theory, the state attorney general has oversight mm. of the land trust can make sure they're doing their job type of thing. There, There isn't a lot of uh, uh, examination of land trust. There was one NGO that started a, a bunch of years, maybe 15 years ago now, that was labeling itself as kind of a watchdog for land trust, making sure they were actually doing stuff. But um, I think it's dissolved already. Um, and it's unclear how you can terminate these things. Most state laws say you can terminate them the same processes that you use to terminate other easements. And so, as you know, that could be by consent of the parties involved. Right. You know, so it, it's it's they're they're new enough, and there's little enough case law that this is um, there's a debate in the conservation easement community about what the rules actually are here. But with no documentation, I mean, no one you talked to in, in Fish and Wildlife thought it was that they had any kind of, like, why not just say when you give one of these permits and part of the permit involves an HCP, a Habitat Conservation Plan, that involves uh, the creation of a conservation easement. You know, one of the conditions shall be, you know, annual reports to or biannual reports to U.S. Fish from the holder of that conservation easement uh, detailing at least in, you know, it can be very in very brief uh, inspections and monitoring. In other words, just uh, affirming we visited the property, everything is in compliance. Like that's not too much to ask, is it? And and does U.S. Fish not think they, they clearly have that authority to require that, right? Oh, ab- absolutely. And you know what? They probably do do that with some of the projects. You know, that's the, the thing that I saw is just there's such a variety of kind of uh, how the offices are um are acting. And maybe it's more likely also with regional habitat plans. I didn't look at the big regional ones for this project just for kind of sake of scope. And, um, but I, I think that there probably, we probably could dig around and find some HCPs where the Fish and Wildlife Service um, does require kind of some annual monitoring reports or something like that. Um, I'm on my local land trust here. I'm on the board and, and we have some not, um, not endangered species, but we do have some Clean Water Act um, mitigation 
uh, conservation easements, and there's no, there's been no requirement that we report back ever to the Army Corps of Engineers and let them know how they're going or anything like that. So we actually don't know how much of a problem this is. I mean, you know, to the extent that fish and wildlife doesn't require that in some areas, they don't know for sure if those easements even still exist. For example, right, right. Can they and, be fairly? We don't. It's also not clear what we would do. If we learn that they're vi- like, let's say we actually go back and look at, we do our annual monitoring and we go and we look at the back 40 and there's, there's, you know, they built a bunch of houses back there. And so they violated the conservation easement. Now what do you do? Okay, well, I guess that means they've also violated their incidental take permit, but that project was finished 20 years ago. So I the remedies here aren't even clear. Well, I guess you would say that at the time that they, um, well, see, I don't know how this works, but... Um, you know, I think Section 10 says that, you, you know, if you if you violate the terms of the permit, your permit can be revoked. Right. Right. So and, but it doesn't do you much good to revoke a permit that's already expired and the project's built. Right. So my question is, you know, if you find that they have not complied with the easement, which uh, was a requirement of the HCP, which was a requirement of the permit, uh, have they committed a take and they're subject to civil and criminal penalties? Yeah. So here would be the <laughs> just to keep making it more complicated. I'm trying not to do that, but it's <laughs> OK. What, one of the things that happens is a lot of times is that the person who was the HCP applicant, the person who was the permit applicant who had the project, is no longer involved, right? They have sold off. They don't like to hold on to that land that has conservation easements on it. And sometimes they never do. Sometimes they just buy it and, and give it to other people to deal with. So it might be very shocking for them, too, to if somebody comes back to them 20 right. years and says, hey, you know that that money you gave us for to do kind of mitigation over there, like the mitigation didn't really work. So they also feel like they've done their job by putting up the money and it would be very surprising for them to learn that the permit was violating and somebody was coming after them now for civil and criminal penalties. So what's your take on a best practices sort of idea for like you, you found we can imagine a way things should look. You found the way things actually look with the four case studies that you did how what is your sense of what a best practices approach would look like in a world where we're assuming for purposes of argument that people are going to continue to get these permits under section 10 that in order to get the permits they're going to have to continue to develop uh habitat conservation plans and that conservation servitudes or whatever name you want to call them are going to continue to be a key part of habitat conservation plans. So make all those assumptions. Mm-hmm. What does this look like? What should it look like? Well, there's a few things I would do. One is I would kind of figure out, I would have some of the details of the conservation easements uh, figured out at the point where you're doing public review, right? So during the notice and comment process so that these things are actually out there for people to kind of uh, learn about and understand and be a little bit easier to actually find in the record and track. I would also, I think this is the easiest and biggest thing, although the Fish and Wildlife Service probably wouldn't say easiest. I think the Fish and Wildlife Service should retain enforcement rights and oversight of all of these conservation lands and conservation easements. And I, and I say that also believing that same rule should expand for other entities, other government entities that are using conservation easements as an exaction. So, do I, so I would say the same thing about the Army Corps with wetlands conservation easements. Um, And to that extent, I would also then have actual language within within the document, within each conservation easement, that if you were to actually pull it up and look at it in a county recorder's office, it would say in there, 
what permit it was associated with. Mm. So that way, when you are when you do have them coming before a court to try and get them modified or changed, that 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 information is out there and people realize, particularly let's say a judge taking this to a court to try and get it modified, and and if a judge understands that this was part of a larger project and it was um, uh, that the public has actually sacrificed something for it, they might be less willing to allow kind of just these modifications and terminations based on the uh, agreement of the parties. So I do think there's kind of a few not too crazy things that you could do that would help improve things. There are only, aren't there only like 700 of these? I mean, it sounds like, I mean, whether that's a big number or not depends on, I guess, what other programs you, you compare against. You mean 700 Habitat Conservation? Yeah, 700 HCPs. Isn't that what you said in the article? Yeah, but that, but some of those, we're not, we're talking about way more than 700 conservation easements. Some of those are huge, huge HCPs with mitigation covering acres and acres. Right. Right. And when you when it comes to an endangered species, you know, look at the Teleco Dam example. You might not need that much space or area where where, where you would be leading to kind of the eradication of a species. But yeah, I mean, here's what I'm thinking, right? So what we need is a website. That's always yeah, the answer to everything, Absolutely. right? Yeah. <laughs> so a website where every single incidental take permit is linked. And, and every and, one of its supporting documents. And every Absolutely. one of its documents is in there, Absolutely. right? And like pay a, a few college students to do what jessica did to get your hands around the ones that have been lost right i mean yeah or that are missing i mean how long you know spend if if it takes two or three years uh for or four years or five years i mean it, it would be worth it but get a website that has every single incidental take permit absolutely uh, listed so you can click and you can see and then it will become easier to do uh what i mean then at least like u.s fish will know which permits are have been granted in our area and what are the ongoing duties uh, that exist with respect to those permits that we should be monitoring and then you can get you know, they can ask people who are holding these conservation easements tell right. us what you've done yeah and, and members of the public too right so this is kind of one of the things and endangered species act is something that actually has a citizen supervision and we have some very active groups like the center for biological diversity that spend a lot of time kind of thinking about endangered species, this would also give kind of everybody a tool to put a little bit more eyes on the problem. So can a private party who learns that uh, a, a conservation easement that was created in the context of an HCP made so someone could get an incidental take permit, if a private party learns that that easement's been violated, is there any cause of action that that person can bring against the violator as a civil action in court to get some money. Okay. In theory, um, that's, that's absolutely true. Right. So you could bring, oh, there is. Okay. Except, except that's why I start with in theory, right? <laughs> so you could bring, you could bring an action saying that the endangered species act has been violated. There's a citizen supervision that allows you to do so. Uh, unfortunately, uh, again, uh, justice Scalia has made it incredibly challenging to get standing to bring such a suit. This is in the Lujan case, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you'd have to, so, yes, maybe we could do it. You'd have to work really hard to kind of show why you have standing. And it, well, you, it'd be easier for an organization, especially if you've got some scientists who study these things. You, you need individuals who have some clear nexus with the uh, species. Right. Yes. Know, so another way to improve this, this, in addition to creating information repositories, like a website, which you've already described, Another way to improve the prospect that this will actually achieve the end it was designed to achieve, which is 
to protect habitat uh, for these species um, is to strengthen the way that private parties who observe a wrong can both learn about the, is it really a wrong? It seems like it is. Let me go check the documents. Oh, yes, it really is a wrong. Um, I can privately gain by bringing this wrong to the public's attention, the sort of private attorney general idea, right? Which yeah. is very common throughout the law. So right. it sounds like that you would like to see that strengthened too. More like key TAM for. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so cause there are mechanisms that um, I think the court did grant review for a case next term, which is about the, it's a, it's a privacy statute if, if memory serves, but you know, this question about can Congress create standing simply by declaring a wrong, even if the person isn't harmed in any other way? This is very interesting. I mean, right. we should talk about this another time. I'm actually thinking about writing something. So, yeah, it's uh, this is Justice Kennedy's opinion in the Lujan case, which is an endangered species case. Right. Okay. This is the one where Justice Scalia ridicules, especially the terminology used by it's the like 20 plaintiffs. years ago. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's an older case. Yeah. And this, I think it was the Nile crocodile was the um was the critter involved and this is actually overseas, but the, the people suing didn't have plane tickets to go visit, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they were claiming that their connect Scalia was kind of ridiculing the connections that they had, especially the terminology for him. One of them was like the animal nexus theory and he yeah. kept calling them unfortunately named, but Kennedy has a really interesting concurrence, which has really stuck with me uh, about how um, that Congress can define new injuries, but it has to do it in a particular way. And um, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, how, how that evolves. But they, they can't just create um, uh, blanket standing. Um, right. right. But, um, but they can define injuries. And, and so defining the injury of, um, you know, it may be something as minimal as um, you live in the region where the species lives. Yeah. That's being affected by the violation of the permit. Yeah. Uh, right. Possibly. I mean, it, let's say it, but this assumes that that Article three permits Congress to be that capacious in its view. Right. Yeah. Uh, which is the question in that very in, in that case. Yeah. I wonder, too, how you remedy the not just the substance, but also the lack of record keeping and all of that. I, I don't well, know. That if, seems very uh, it's easy to solve in the way that you said in terms of. Yeah. Like you would know what to do. It's a matter of getting the money to do it. And it's shocking to me that the reading the paper was quite shocking. It was shocking. And here's one related to that. Here's kind of one last thing I wanted to ask you about, Jessica, was uh, when you talked, I mean, clearly, like they had no idea what permits they were actually enforcing or what steps they would need to take to enforce those things. And yet my, you know, I think there are a lot of really dedicated people who work in U.S. fish who are really interested in the preservation of endangered species. And there are in uh, like the, was it the county of San Mateo that you work yeah. with? Yeah. And there, there are a lot of people who work there in parks who really are interested in this. And so my question is, is this a matter of like bureaucracy run amok and they, so they don't know what their purposes are? Or is it in fact, and this is kind of what I suspected, but I don't know, that they are engaged kind of day to day with trying to preserve habitat and to uh, create new habitat. And the Endangered Species Act they see as an important tool. But once there's already an HCP, they're kind of on to the next thing. And they're, they conceive of their own best efforts as working on the new project to preserve habitat rather than monitoring some uh, land trust who is uh, administering something they already secured. Is that right? I think that's absolutely right. So I, and I think that this might be 
a larger pattern, again, that we see in environmental law and probably elsewhere. We spend a lot of time and energy at the front end. So these these are you know these people are definitely invested in this projects and, and they think they're they're out there to protect endangered species they care a lot about it they spend a, a lot of time kind of back and forth public meetings lots of input stakeholder meetings to try and uh, write the best incidental take permit possible the best you know um, uh, working with them to working with the applicants to to really craft a good HCP um, they spend a lot of time on their section 7 you know consultation documents but then once it's in place they stop thinking about it and 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 and, and feel a little bit I you get a little bit of a feeling like oh job is done on to the next project uh, and without realizing that you know there's there's a lot more kind of at the back end to, st- to still be thinking about and focusing on, you know, and, 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 and frankly, there I'm sure there's definite budgetary and staffing issues going on here as well. You know, a lot of the Endangered Species Act, uh, a lot of the things that the Fish and Wildlife Service do under the Endangered Species Act is, is can be litigation-driven and petition-driven. So they have a lot of uh, external forces already telling them, hey, you guys need to be working on these other things that have real clear deadlines within the statute of when they have to comply with, right? Like once they get a petition for listing, there's only so much time before they have to reply to it. Once they get a permit application, there's only so much time before they have to reply to it. So if you can think of your own life, you're going to spend all your time replying to those things that have real deadlines on them and not going back and kind of doing your upkeep. There's not only that, but too, if if I may, um, and and this is kind of empirical, uh, uh, so you know how you feel about it may turn on what you find when you're able to do the part of the project that you thought you were setting out to do, right? Which mm-hmm. is to to see actually what the, whether these conservation easements were were still there and how they were being enforced. And and uh, so so if if you're if you're an employee of one of these agencies, uh, you, you may think, well, my you know primarily what we're trying to do here is to get no building to occur in these areas and to do the best we can on that. And once I've got a conservation easement, and once it's held by this land trust, in a way that's like someone else's problem. Yeah. But, but so, too, I'm actually fairly confident that this land trust will, you know, that they won't actually build in this area. And and that may be empirically well-founded or not well-founded. I mean, that's the kind of thing we'd want to find out, like that I think you set out to find out, right? I mean, have they built in these areas that they had set aside or not? Um, sure. But it, but if it's true that they haven't, you know, even if not everything is completely perfect, but, but if the areas which were set aside in those original HCPs are still not built upon mainly, then in some ways, like these employees in a, in a budget constrained world are completely justified in putting all of their energies into getting more areas for more critters uh, set aside, right? Yeah. And that's actually why I kind of titled the piece, Keeping Track of Conservation. You know, I, I wasn't able to actually assess the conservation, right? I couldn't actually go out there and assess how much was being done because of the, just the struggle of, of trying to find it as along with my kind of um, needing a conservation biology partners probably to work on that. So, so that's my, I, there's a good chance that there's a lot of great work being done and, and many areas that we don't need to worry about. But the problem was I couldn't even make that assessment because mm. nobody was able to kind of, figure out what was going on or provide any documents or even point me to the right person. And given the fact that the, that the, the whole predicate for this system being a fair balancing of interests is that there would be this genuine, you know, trade. Like 
yes, we know that the project you want to do is going to create this harm, but that's okay because it's offset by this benefit. Yeah. And if no one ever even goes to look to see if the benefit's been realized, I mean, one thing that's, I mean, a sort of perverse that, I, that is occurring to me sitting here as we're having this conversation, right? Um, your, your paper probably, uh, you, a, a person could make, I was just going to do it too strongly, but a person <laughs> could make the argument that your paper has made the world actually considerably, uh, considerably worse off. What? Um, what? Because what it's revealed yeah. is the fragility of the system, right? And so people ought to be looking at this paper and saying, oh, my God, there's so much shit we could get away with. <laughs> right? They're never going to find out. Or if they do find out, it's going to be years. Right? Take the money and run. Yeah. Well, the other thing, the other uh, comment I get from people, uh, maybe about this paper, but also about a lot of my other work about um, conservation easements is, is people are like, don't tell people. <laughs> you know, keep it quiet because this is maybe one of the best tools that we have is to is you know this protecting land and if all of a sudden you make it seem like it's not working we're just going to get less protection yeah this is why we need more right we need an army of uh we need an army of drones out there so (laughs) there was in one of your case studies it was on it was a small property on private land and it was heavily wooded and sloped and you couldn't get into it and all i was thinking is boy if she had that that uh is it drj (laughs) you know those phantom those phantom vision drones that fly like you could have flown it over there and 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 observe from the air Hey, you know what? They're doing that with uh, they, that is one of the ways that um, people are talking about starting to monitor these things. I don't, they, I don't know if they're doing it, but people are talking about using drones to yeah. monitor these things. I mean, it's so much weirder than saying it's I'll not working. I'll write that into my next grant proposal. That's that it. It's, it. It's so much weirder because it's not you're not saying it's not working. You're saying we don't know. Yeah, exactly. And, and the reason we don't know is because people don't look. And the reason they don't look is because it's very hard to know where to look. Yeah. Here's here's my suggestion for the next study. Uh, you apply to the UN for a grant, and you monitor landowner endangered species compliance using black helicopters. <laughs> so great! But, but you have to wear jack boots while you're doing that'll it. That'll go over really well with the anti ESA crowd. Absolutely. Think, yeah. <laughs> Jessica, this has been awesome. Do you? Do, I don't know if there's any. Well, if there's anything else you wanted to say, I think we'll save it for part two. Yeah. Well, it's been fun. Yeah, so th- uh, this is a really awesome article, and and like yeah, people said, need to read it. It's really accessible, <laughs> and and one thing you call for that we didn't get to is you call for a general general accounting office uh, yeah. um, uh, investigation, which I think is great. I mean, something that like basically what you said: the federal government here is a mess, and somebody needs to figure out how to get right. this straightened out. Some amount of centralization and record keeping is yeah. is more, and and that part is so accessible, and and so if if, if any of our listeners are interested in learning. More about the Endangered Species Act. You've got a big section in there just kind of walking people through what the act does. And then yeah. I think your on-the-ground reporting is really, like, it's well-written, it's accessible, yeah. it's easy to read, it reads fast. Like, you know, spend spend an hour or two and, and, and read Jessica's article and find out about this stuff. I think and, it's great. And please don't read it if your purpose is to cause an orgy of animal death. <laughs> <laughs> because we're not trying to usher in orgies of animal death. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, listen, thanks a lot, Jessica. And right, thanks, uh, until next time. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye.